Duckhouse podcast with me, your host, Rory Johnston, in association with The Mallard, the newspaper for conservative students. Chaos. The rule of law is no more. The government has collapsed and anarchy has descended. Or so we thought. Recorded last week, we look back at the immediate fallout to Theresa May's Brexit deal. As you'll find, we're no more Nostradamus than Dennis and Menace. I promise that reference will make sense if you stay for the whole episode. Honestly. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duck House Podcast. As ever, I'm joined by the Mr. Reliable, as ever dependable, Jake Scott. How are we? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. How are you? Very well, thank you. I, I sense when you say not too bad, that's uh, sort of hiding certain emotions considering the news of the last 24 hours. Yes, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm keeping calm. I'm keeping on. calm and carry on. Um, well, if we if we do sort of touch upon the elephant in the room, mm. the the Brexit deal that has been negotiated and put forward to Parliament, um, if anyone has seen the news, which I suspect everyone has, yesterday was a bit of a, uh, it was a bit of a mauling for Theresa May in the Commons. Mm-hmm. Um, Rumours that the 48, or the 40 signatures required for a vote of no confidence have been secured. So I suppose we're just waiting on that. Um, and that might happen later on today. What are your overall feelings towards the negotiation and Mrs May? Um, as someone who's quite an ardent Brexiteer, um, I am really, really not very happy. Um, I feel as though um, this whole time May has almost been apologising, and this feels like the ultimate apology, so to speak, to the European Union. Um, it feels like she's rather than going to Brussels and saying, Britain has voted to leave, what are you going to give us? She's gone and said, Britain's going to leave, what do we need to give you to keep you happy? And mm. um, that's just not something I'm happy with at all. No, that, that is very true. Um, I, I, I too am a Eurosceptic, but as we've discussed on the podcast, I voted to remain. Because I was worried at the time of the election, or the referendum, sorry, that mm. the arguments provided to leave were a bit trivialised. I mean, we, we can all think back to the big bus. And I do worry there is, there's this idea from ardent Brexiteers that they could have secured any deal that they wanted to. And mm. I, 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 I just feel those claims are slightly unsubstantiated. Um, no, I'm not saying that I, I think Mrs May's agreement is a good deal. Mm. I, uh, you're going to really disagree with me. me <laughs> sorry, disagree with me on this. I think, as it appears, Theresa May is going to continue to sell this deal. I really think there needs to be a second referendum. Mm. Mm. You're, you're, you're grumbling. Um, I do. I, I mean, on what? Second referendum on what? Well, this this is the thing. If there there has to be, in my eyes, 
there, there are there are two roads that you can go for for the conservatives to go down. Mm-hmm. One road is oust Theresa May now, and you have your ardent Brexiteers that they've you know gone on record as what a wonderful thing Brexit can be. Then they have to deliver that. They yeah. have no option. They actually have to put their money where their mouth is now. Or if Theresa May is going to stay resilient, if she is going to push this deal that she has negotiated, then I'm afraid if people do feel so ardently that that isn't the Brexit that people were promised, which, which as actually I agreed with him a lot yesterday, Chukra Munna says that was never going to be the case. You could have the most competent government ever and it would be very unlikely that you know the red bus sort of manifesto would be uh achieved yeah um i i do i do feel like a a second referendum has to be on the cards like you you can't i i i fear that people will go for brexit just because it's brexit and sacrifice or, or will compromise with getting a bad deal that there has to be some sensibility surely but um, look, it, it, I I think the second referendum issue is extremely complex. You, you know, the second referendum is almost sort of a two fingers to seventeen million people who voted to leave. Yeah. And I think if there was a second referendum, it would please a lot of people. However, if there wasn't, it would infuriate millions more. Um. So, so it really, really is like a, a fine line that you're you're treading. Mm. Well, I mean, I I I understand. I don't think I think of all the people I've spoken to regarding second referendum, you're the first person who's actually put forward a fairly sensible reason. Um, Thank you very much. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, I think I just. Practically, I think um, you would have a problem with the with the ballot paper because you'd have three options essentially, which would be this deal, no deal, or remain. Yeah. Um, and you can't do it on a first past the post basis because then you upset two thirds, yeah, rather than one half. Um, and if you do it on a single transferable vote system, then I'm almost certain remaining would win. Because I think people would be, given the 18 months we've had of people telling us that no deal is terrifying and that it's the cliff edge and it's the end of the world, I think people will not not fall for that, but I think people will believe that, even if it's not necessarily true. Mm. Um, and I don't think that's fair on the British public, because it's almost as if, um, well, I mean, this has been said, but accepting now a second referendum is almost admitting that the British people didn't know what they were voting for. And I think it's extraordinarily patronising to say that because you either go down the route where no one knew what they were voting for because no one could see into the future and understand the future of a relationship with the European Union and no one could see into the future and imagine a world outside of the European Union. Yeah. Or you say that people were aware of what they are voting for because... There was such um, negative campaigning from Leave, uh, sorry, sorry, from Remain, and um, so much 
campaigning from leave. Um, there was never really an attempt to sell the European membership to the British public. This is this is something that I always go back to, is that when you look at the campaign, it was never, we need to stay in the European Union because it's, it's so good for us. It was more, we need to stay in the European Union because the other option is so bad. Mm. But any time you actually go out and speak to people that voted to leave, their situation is bad enough that they and they have a feeling, they have a really distinct feeling of it can't get any worse. You go down to places like Walsall and and distinct leave voting communities. On the day after the referendum, there was some there was a reporter in Walsall who was speaking to people who said, "Why did you vote to leave?" And they said, "Because it's it can't get worse. We're in such a bad situation." Not necessarily politically, but economically. We're, you know, these people have lost their livelihoods. Right. And whether you want to blame that on neoliberalism or globalisation or the European Union, something had to change for these people. So it's extraordinarily patronising to admit to, 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 to turn around to these people and say, you got it wrong, or you didn't know what you were voting for, because if you're going to admit that, then you have to admit that you didn't know what you were voting for. Yeah. And that's why I find the concept of a second referendum so annoying, because even then, we won't know what we're voting for, because you can't know what a no-deal situation is going to be, and you can't know what a future um, EU membership is going to be either. So either this deal wins, which is, is going to be... Well, again, I, I, I hold my hands up. I don't know how it will be for the United Kingdom, but from the looks of things, it doesn't look good. Um, or we remain, because... We've had such, as I say, such an intensive period of campaigning telling us that no deal is the end of the world. Yeah. I, I must admit, I'd, being part of a club in which, on technicalities, it's going to prove to be almost impossible to leave mm. makes me really not want to be part of that club. Um, yeah. But if, if, for, you know, if I was to play devil's advocate, yeah. when you say... Uh, when people, especially the ardent Brexiteers, say, well, this is not the Brexit we voted for. Yeah. Is, is it not, is that not a contradiction or an act of hypocrisy? Because, you know, you, you were voting to leave mm. the European Union. You weren't voting on the, uh, the negotiated deal to leave mm. the European Union. Therefore... Okay, you may not like Theresa May's negotiated deal, but it's quite uh, hubristic of the Brexiteers to, you know, after two and sort of two and a half years, just finally stand up now and mm. exclaim what an utter disaster and betrayal it is. Mm. I, I mean, that that's my slight concern and disagreement with what you know what the Tories were doing yesterday, um, yeah. and I. I'd, I'd, I'd really, I'd, I'd, I don't know, I'd, I just found myself, as I do with most things these days, really in the middle. Mm. I just sort of, I don't know, it, it's, I, I was so dismayed by what was happening yesterday. It was, it was largely chaos. Um, I think you're right, I think people who voted to leave, by and large, didn't necessarily know what they wanted instead, but they just knew that they didn't want this. Um, there are 
from from the Lord Ashcroft poll that was conducted on the, oh, the thing it was the twenty sixth of June, so two days after the referendum result came in. Um, three reasons why people voted to leave the European Union. The first of which was immigration. The second of which was um, sovereignty. And the third of which was, um, well, it kind of ties into sovereignty, but a desire to retain control over our own laws. Mm. Now, the problem is that politically, this has been ignored. We have talked and talked and talked about the economic implications of Brexit, but no one, especially the politicians, wants to act, want to actually talk about why people voted to leave. And you can you can look at why people voted to leave because the results are there. Ashcroft did an incredible, incredibly intensive poll, and it showed that it was largely over political concerns, not economic concerns. So when we say you know Britain needs to stay in the customs union so that businesses can make sure they carry on as they were, well that's not why people voted to leave. People don't really care about business. And actually, another thing was that if you, when he asked this poll, he said would you be willing to take a short-term economic loss for a long-term political gain? And they said overwhelmingly yes, because what matters to people is a sense of political identity. And the, the European Union does not command a sense of loyalty to enough to create a political identity. And the British political system does, but it is increasingly being undermined by being in the European Union. Um, and one of these out outcomes from this uh, negotiation is that we will remain in a form of customs agreement which subjects us to the European Court of Justice. Now, that is a fundamentally political decision. It's not an economic decision. So we have not had the Brexit that people voted for. We have not had an, a delivery on what people wanted. So... And that is the only ironclad thing that I genuinely think you can say as a Brexiteer is that people voted for political gain and we have not had it. Right. So, that's so, so the, for you, the argument's been focused too much on the economic gain rather than political. Yes, absolutely. Mm. No, I would tend to agree with that. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, why people voted to leave. People didn't vote to leave to improve their economic position because at the end of the day, they didn't think it could get worse. So to them, it made no difference. Right. It comes to a sort of an interesting idea on, um, you know, I, I, not to sound like a raving lunatic here, because I, I recognise I'm going to, but it, it kind of, uh, at least the idea of how good is democracy as a, as a concept and a system. Wow. Because you, you, you elect these politicians that seemingly, if we go on your justification, have a different motive to the, the populace or the the electorate that vote them in. Mm. Well, that won't be the case in 2021 if this, or 22 if this carries on. We will not have a Conservative government in that, that election because the Conservatives have they've tried their hardest to please everyone and they have upset most people in the process, as was the case in 2017. Mm. Yeah. Well, I just want the rise of the radical centrist. <laughs> That'll well, be me. One day we'll have you in number ten, Rory. Oh, please, no, 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 no. You don't want a moron like me running the country. But I, I, I'm genuinely concerned now about the rise of Corbyn. I think it really opens the door for him. Yeah, because 
if, if he, he can play it quite cleverly now, if he positions himself as a Brexiteer, then I think he'll he'll sweep up UKIP votes, and he might he he'll never he'll never ever gain Tory voters, but he can persuade Conservative voters to not vote, and that is more damaging than trying to win them over. Mm. And that I think if again if you look back at 2017, the the claim that you know, youth turnout massively increased, turned out to not be true. I think people quoted it as something like 67%. It was actually around 50. Now, it's an increase. It's quite a dramatic increase, but it's nowhere near what people thought it was. Yeah. It wasn't the youth quake. Well, and if you, if you look at the statistics, the youth quake, or of this perceived youth, youth quake, sorry. Yeah. I think, was it in 2015, 2015 or 2010? Mm-hmm. The youth turnout was around sort of the high 30s. It was actually at the EU referendum when youth turnout finally rose to above 50%. Yeah. And in fact, at the 2017 election, youth turnout only increased a further 1% on that mm. EU figure. So actually, if there was a, a youth quake, it was at the EU referendum. Yeah, exactly. And the, the, the reason I bring it up is because the only, from what I remember, the only group that declined in turnout was the over 65s who traditionally overwhelmingly vote Conservative. So politically, all the all Labour has to do is prove to the Conservative voters that there's no point voting Conservative. They don't have to prove that they have to vote Labour or they have to vote UKIP or Liberal Democrat. They just have to prove they don't vote not to vote Conservative and then Labour will win. And as it stands, I think that will happen because the Conservative Party have not done anything to actually win over their own core supporters. Mm. So I'm, I'm guessing, therefore, are you sort of waiting for a vote of no confidence against Theresa May? And I'm guessing you'd like sort of a, a small C Conservative or someone more to the, the right of what we've seen in the party for the last decade or so. Yeah, my my preferred... Someone from the ERG, at the very least, the, the, the European Research Group, someone who believes in Brexit... The reality of a leadership contest is that we'll probably go to someone like Javid um, or Gove. I don't think it will go to Gove because I think he's too um, he's got too much of a history. But Javid is he's fairly liberal, he's fairly modern, but at the same time he's made something of a name for himself by speaking honestly about the grooming gangs in Telford and Rotherham and pointing out as any statistician would, that they were largely Asian. Um, and it led to a, a backlash because people were saying things like, what about, um, you know, white paedophiles? Like, okay, well, very well and good, we'll deal with them, but there have not been large mass-scale grooming gangs from white paedophiles. It's largely been from Asian paedophiles. So um, he's won over parts of the grassroots by actually saying what people are thinking. Right. So as a result, I think he'll he'll be a he'll be a um, what's the word? I think he'll be satisfactory to the the right of the party, and he'll be appealing to the liberal wing. What do you make of uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg over the next or over the last couple of days? To me, it seems like he is sort of the linchpin within the party now. He is the kingmaker. Yeah, that's. I was I was um, with a group last night, and that's what we said was that. He, he will be the kingmaker of this um, of of this next 
well, whenever the next leadership contest is, he will be the kingmaker. And sub- substantially, he's not. He doesn't remind me of this person, but he is very sim. He's in a very similar position to Enoch Powell in the seventies, in that the party leadership will not consider him, which is annoying. Um, but he has such sway now over the grassroots that it doesn't matter who the final two are in the uh, in the contest. Whoever he backs will win, and I'm fairly willing to say that confidently. Um, if it came down to a well, if it came down to say, let's say Gove and Javid, who are fairly similar individuals. And there's very little between them. Whoever Rees-Mogg endorses will, I think, win that competition. Mm. Do you, do you perhaps see an opportunity for a a Boris leadership with Rees-Mogg sort of propping him up? Yeah, that was touted about two months ago, wasn't it? Mm. Um. Well, what do you think? I I could see that to be quite conceivable. Uh, I think it's abundantly clear to anyone that Boris Johnson wants to be top dog. Uh, yeah. He wants to be a number 10. Uh, and I still think that Boris Johnson, no matter how much bad press he's received over the last two years, I still think he is the the one man who could... He still energises the grassroots. He still has... He's still seen favourably by activists. And I think actually he could, I still, by and large, I think he's probably still popular in Britain. I, I, obviously, with the amount of bad, bad press, you wouldn't get that indication. But I reckon he's just one of those characters that could prove to be nationally popular, as he was when Mayor of London. Um, obviously, because of the bad press, it may not be at the same levels. Mm. But it wouldn't surprise me if he is still, you know, quietly seen as a favourable character. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think I think you make a good point. Um, He does seem to he does seem to come out of these things almost stronger than when he went in. Uh Um, Not quite water off a duck's back, but he does seem to be. I think he seems to thrive almost on bad publicity, uh, or he, at least he handles it extraordinarily well. Yeah. Um, you know, I, may, maybe it's a point worth thinking about actually. But I could never imagine Boris Johnson you turning on a policy and then standing up in front of the nation's press and saying nothing has changed as May did last year. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's kind of the point is that he's actually quite unapologetic. Um, and people don't necessarily like it, but they respect it. And I think if you had someone that people respected but didn't like running for leadership, then you'd have you'd have to have someone like Rees Mogg backing them because otherwise you're not going to get the solid support. Um, but it's it's just I suppose it would. I think the question of Johnson largely comes down to who he would be up against because that would probably be the deciding factor I think mm. well I, I imagine it would be someone like uh, as, you, as you alluded to Sajid Javid or mm. um, 
who else has sort of been touted? David Davis, just because I think he's a hard Brexiteer or Esther mm. McVeigh, sort of the, or Dominic Raab, the, the names that Jacob Rees-Mogg sort of listed in his uh, little press conference yesterday afternoon. Yeah. If if I was to sort of remain a sort as I loosely am, well, well, I don't know if I am, but if if ever I was going to vote Tory at the next election, which I probably would anyway, because I don't want Corbyn in. <laughs> yeah. I'd I'd quite like to see Liz Truss in. I think she's she sort of appeals to what I sort of believe in, in sort of freedom and free markets. Yeah, she's more of a libertarian, isn't she? Yeah. I'd like that. But then again, it's sort of, I don't see that happening just purely because the Conservatives are so subsumed by Brexit. Mm. Well, so she's, she's not currently the Secretary of State for Justice, but she was until the election yeah. or just after. Um, and she's currently the Chief Secretary to the Treasury. Perhaps she'd have to have I think she'd have to have more experience before she was considered for a leadership run. Um, Secretary of State for Environment and Food and Rural Affairs. Before that, uh, yeah, Parliamentary Under Secretary of State for Education. Mm. Yeah, why not? Well, there's there, there is credentials. There are credentials there, but by and large, no Conservative leader has. Um, has well, from what from what I remember, most conservative leaders have come from one of the great offices, which tends to be um, foreign secretary, home secretary, and chancellor. Um, you say that, but David Cameron, the most successful Tory politician yeah. since Thatcher, she he, uh, I mean, he was. I guess it's maybe easier as leader of the opposition. Um, yeah, but he was. What, only Shadow Secretary for State of uh, Education and Skills? So it wasn't a a vast amount of Shadow Cabinet experience. No, true. Mind you, this is different if you're electing Prime Minister, I suppose. Yeah, I think you've got to have someone who who has been on the front line of government since that government has been in in Parliament. Yeah. Um, Which means it's got to be, essentially, someone from the last two years who is someone who's stayed in the cabinet for longer than two years and you're going to be hard-pressed to find someone. Jeremy Hunt. (laughs) That would be the most unpopular decision imaginable. (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah, we would not do very well with him as leader. No, he wouldn't. No. Um, He's a very clever man, and I have to say he's a very good politician, but I don't think he's uh, someone that appeals to the electorate all that well. No, you can say that again. Mm. You can certainly say that again. Oh well, the fourth way centrists. That's what we need. <laughs> no. No. Okay. No, we need a traditionalist revival. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I would tend to disagree. Um, the news coming out today is that uh, Gove uh, is absolutely confident in Theresa May which is quite interesting seeing as there was a lot of speculation that he was going to be one of the uh, the cabinet ministers to resign um, last night he says that um, he absolutely has confidence in Theresa May um, and that he will be staying on at DEFRA um, that's quite interesting seeing as he was one of the lead um, sort of 
campaigners for the the Leave campaign. Do you think that having someone like Gove on her side is perhaps um, a, a crumb of comfort for Theresa May? Or do you think it doesn't really mean a lot at all? I don't know. That's it's a, it's an interesting one because I think Gove has a mixed reputation in the grassroots at the moment. Um, you know, he obviously he stabbed Johnson in the back, um, but yeah, I, I don't I don't necessarily think that this means anything. Um, it's good for her to know that one of her cabinets behind her, yeah. or at least you know one of the potential rebels is behind her. Um, but I don't think it means anything for her popularity in the wider party or in terms of um, the country itself. Right. No, but it is interesting because, like you say, he was such. He was one of the, the first people to sign the um, the. the the banner saying that we should leave the European Union. Um, and he was someone who was so passionate about leaving. Um, and I can't see much in the agreement that would actually placate him, especially considering with DEFRA, um, you know, part of this, looking at Sky's uh, news site, um, part of the agreement is that the UK is to become an independent coastal state, which is... I mean, first of all, it is a little patronising to me. We've been an independent coastal nation for longer than the European Union has even been conceived of as an idea. Yeah. Um, but it says, we'll work with the EU on fishing rights. Well, of course we're going to work with the EU on fishing rights. We were always going to. Yeah. Because don't just ignore your, your biggest neighbour. Um, but I can't imagine that he's all that happy about it because we don't retain full control over what is essentially an environmental policy. Mm. So I don't, I don't get it. I think it's more, again, I think it's more of a careerist move, more of a political move than it is an actual principle move, which I'm not, not surprised having, uh, it's what I've come to expect from Gove. So you're not a fan then, it'd be fair to say. Um, I think he's, I think he's a clever man. And I think he is not given the, um, not given his, as much respect as he necessarily deserves. But that being said, I think he loses a lot of respect when he makes moves like this. Mm. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, worrying times ahead, I I, I assume. <laughs> I think we can all agree on that. I mean, this is genuinely utter chaos. Uh, just, just watching the Commons of... Or Theresa May just have the Commons and government dissolve around her you do feel quite sorry for her because she has been granted one hell of a dif- like difficult job yeah like her I cotton mean, socks. she has been handed a difficult job but it's not like she didn't want it that that is true she put herself up for it um mm. but i i do wonder uh, this may sound really ignorant and stupid but did i wonder if she really knew whether what she, well sorry she knew you know what she was getting herself in for and it can't have helped with people like Liam Fox saying securing a trade deal with the EU will be, what, the the easiest in history or something. <laughs> yeah. What yeah. a load of rubbish that was. Well, you know, I, I, I think... 
two years ago, I would 100% be on your side. And when you say that you feel sorry for May and, you know, she's been given a tough job, she, she was handed one of the toughest jobs in history. But all pity disappeared after June 2017. Every single last bit of respect I had for her went when she completely sacrificed our position. You know, she was given a hard job and she made it harder. She has no one to blame but herself for that. So, no, actually, I think um, I think she's made this bed and she continues to make it. And, um, and she'll have to lie in it. But sadly, so are we all. Yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> you can hear it coming over. <laughs> God, no. No, I know. It's going to happen, though, isn't it? Well, yeah, I sincerely hope not. But I, I can't see how it's not going to happen. Mm. Um, here's an idea. Yeah. What if we stayed in the European Union, but we went in like an absolute bull in a china shop? We uh, go in, we veto anything that doesn't go our way. We become the properly awkward neighbours. How about that? <laughs> If well, it, aren't we the second largest con- contributor? Yeah. So throw our weight around. Do it. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> no, obviously that doesn't rub well with you. No, no, I don't. I don't necessarily think it's a. It's a. Well, I don't think it's a bad idea. I think it's. Um... Be such an awkward partner that they just say, "Oh, for God's sake, go." Yeah. I think. The we need to stop being afraid of making friends in Europe. Um, and are we afraid of making friends in Europe? We make the wrong friends in Europe. We oh make well, friends with the people who want the European Union to keep going the direction it is. We don't make friends with the people that want it to go in the opposite direction. Now it might be politically sensitive to ally with people like Viktor Orbán. Yeah, I was just going to say, like it, it political sensitivity put aside he isn't I'm sorry he's not the kind of man you want to be an ally with really but but conservatism is largely around largely about pragmatism and pragmatically our friends in Europe are dictated by who is the enemy of our enemy now it doesn't have to be someone that we sit down with and you know share our table with I'm pretty sure in World War Two, um, FDR was not happy to be allied with uh, Joseph Stalin. But you do these things because the enemy of your enemy is your friend. Now, we need to be making friends with people like Orban, with people in Poland, with people in Denmark and Italy, all these people who are not happy with the European Union as it is, rather than pussyfooting around and trying to placate people who will never, ever agree with us in the first place. Mm. Is there not a case that we perhaps should be leading by example, where, as you know, rather than cozying up to, you know, fringes of a population that are straying very, very to the right? Well, you know, on the one hand, I think you're right, but on the other hand, if you want to go in like a bull in a china shop, you need to make sure that you're not uh, leading by example. Hmm. But no, that is a good point. 
there's there's essentially two factions now forming in the European Union. There's those that wanted to carry on in the direction it is, and those that wanted to stop. And we have, if we're going to stay in the European Union, which is probably, I mean, it doesn't. I don't think we will stay in the European Union. I think Brexit will happen, but this Brexit is not what I wanted. But if we were to stay in the European Union, we'd have to pick a side. And as it stands, we can't pick a side. We can't pick the side of increasing union because that would piss off people at home. Um, which means naturally we have to align ourselves with people that wanted to stop. And if that means being in bed with people that are not necessarily pleasant bedfellows, then it has to be something that we have to consider for the moment. Right. At least that's my opinion. And I'm more than happy for people to disagree because I don't think people like Orban are respectable individuals. I think they are quite bad, horrible individuals. But they actually align themselves with our cause, they want us. They want the European Union to dissolve, and that's you know that is the the flavour of the month. Unfortunately, it's the way it has to be. Well, see that this is one point. Do do we want the European Union to dissolve, or do we just simply not want to be part of it? Oh, I want it to dissolve. <laughs> you do want it to dissolve. Yeah. Right. And and why why would you want to see it dissolve rather than just not be a part of it? Because I don't think its claim to being a force for peace has any credit. I think the lar- largely what has created peace in Europe is NATO um, and the threat of the Cold War. Um, I think it is a, a tool of authoritarian neoliberalism. Uh, and while I'm someone who is a capitalist, I don't like neoliberalism at all because of the way it influences individual lives. Um, and the European Union is, it, it is so willing to use state power to in to what's the word implement neoliberalism at every level that it it, it it has absolutely no respect for local culture individual lives or national sovereignty um, increasingly it's a tool as I say of authoritarian neoliberalism and it will continue to be so regardless of who is inside of it. Whether we go, whether we, we stay, whether Denmark goes, Poland goes, Italy goes, it does not matter. The European Union is, at its core, a rotten apple. And I don't think that any future with the European Union can be anything different. I think perhaps it's a rotten apple because it doesn't serve all the interests of all of Europe. So, for example, when Verhofstadt speaks of a a federation of European states. I, I, I truly think he's in La La Land because Europe is a has a diverse range of national identities and, and nuances and ideologies. Yeah. However, if the European Union, you know, if you if you take sort of Central Europe and the the Benelux countries, if you yeah. take where where it's still seen favourably, I don't I don't see why we, you know, obviously I don't like being a Eurosceptic. I don't want to be part of it, but I don't see why it should be dissolved. If in fact a large number of nation states do actually appreciate its membership status, but so take us out of it, and there's 27 uh, nations in the European Union. Of those 27, can we confidently say that 14 are hugely in favour? Uh, as always, we probably should have done our research before the podcast. <laughs> 
Yeah, but to be fair, I don't think we expected to go down this route. No, probably not. Um, no. I, I would imagine so. I, I just don't think it is the case because I, I don't personally believe that the European Union is benefiting half of its members. I think it's benefiting roughly five. Um, and those no, five but, but, are... But isn't that, you know, your perspective is as an ardent British Brexiteer. Mm. I mean, it's quite natural for you to think like that. But if we were to put our shoes in, say, like, I don't know, if we were to say we were middle-class Belgians... There is a strong chance or likelihood that actually we would quite like the EU. I'm going to have to... We should, again, we should have probably looked all of this up beforehand. But, no, um, you're, you're right. Um, but that's the problem, isn't it? Middle-class Belgians are fine. Working-class Poles are not. Neither are working-class Italians, Hungarians, Austrians, Spaniards. You know, all these people who... Essentially, the European South, where... Um, the EU's policies are the, the EU's policies are largely built around a central European political culture and they don't import well into places like Greece, Italy, Spain, Hungary, Austria, Poland, um, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Slovenia, Bosnia. I don't think these places have the political culture necessary to be part of the European Union vision. But rather than recognising that, the European Union is bulldozing these political cultures from every single level. And I don't think it's necessarily going to last much longer if it continues to do so. Okay. So, Pew, the Pew Research Centre mm-hmm. did um, did a poll uh, last summer. And it was uh, asking the European nations uh, whether they support uh, leaving or remaining. Uh, in the European Union. So, for example, the Greeks, they had a 58% uh, favourability for remaining in the European Union. The Mm. Italians had 57%, French 61%, the Swedish 53%, the Spanish 65%, the Germans, funnily enough, only 50%, and the Poles were actually at 51%. So even though there are growing... We we hear of growing... uh, growing trends of apathy towards the European Union. Mm. Actually, if you look at the larger picture, there's still an awful lot of favourability towards the European Union. And in fact, a lot of the time, it's from countries that you wouldn't necessarily expect, such as the pigs or the pig nations. Mm. Um, so, obviously, I can understand why... You know, I, I agree. I, I would like us to leave the European Union. But... I'm not sure if it would be fair to say let's dissolve the whole thing. I, I, I think there are many, many, many issues with it. Mm. Well, yeah, okay. well, no, fair enough. Uh, I think the Ex- Express last year um, had a, what was it? Well, William Hill um, did their own research and produced their own report. What, the book is? Yeah. Fair enough. Because you've got to remember, these people do a great amount of research in order to give their odds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they listed Denmark, the Czech Republic, Ireland, Hungary, France, Sweden, Italy, and Greece as all being likely on following Britain out of the European Union. Um, So, 
it's it's I think it can always come down to how you interpret these things because mm. you are absolutely right in that these people are saying that they prefer to stay rather than go. But of those people, how many people actually support the European Union? You know, I don't necessarily think that like yourself, I think a large portion of people that voted to remain in 2016 did so because they didn't know what else there was. Um, and that kind of circles back to the European Union negotiations we're going through. Part of the reason the EU wants to be so hard on us is because they want to make an example out of us and prove that they will be so difficult that leaving is worse than staying. Yeah, look, I, I, I think that's a truly sort of uh, one of the more repugnant things about the European Union is that they will punish you for leaving. Mm. Uh, they're not the sort of fair and tolerant bunch that they wish to proselytize, proselytize that they are. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, it's... <sighs> no, it's fair. If, if we have sort of different approaches to it, we that, that's just, I suppose, how we are. Um, and I respect that. Yes. Um, if we were going to talk about any other news, it, you know what? Other than yesterday, it's been a bit of a quiet one, has it not? Recently, I think we. Well, it has been. Um, I think the last week we didn't get a chance to record, but last week I wanted to talk about my uh, my man Roger Scruton and. Oh. Building better, building building beautiful commission. Um, yeah, all this rubbish that's... about how he's a homophobe and an Islamophobe. Yeah. yeah, just a lot of slander. That you know, like I, I'm not a small C conservative, so mm. you know, I'm not going to say Roger Scruton is, you know, my poster boy, which uh, <laughs> which he certainly is for you. I mean, if you've listened to any other podcast that we've done, you'll know that Jake adores the man. Um, but it just it was it was like nigh on slanderous what was coming out it was complete ignorance yeah it, like it was quite obvious that people criticizing him hadn't really read much of what he's produced and if they had read anything they were taking a lot of it out of context oh yeah definitely the the, the speech that was thrown around that was um so, so the homophobia and the Islamophobia claims are largely baseless. The reason that people claimed that is because he has two publications that are um, perhaps are out of date with his views now. The first was a philosophical inquiry into sexual desire, in which he he or, or claimed that. Um, homosexuality is not normal. Now, you can, I think you can, you can make a political truth, and you can make a empirical truth. Right. Now, empirically, homosexuality is not natural. Uh, would you say, say that? Would, would you? Well, when you say not natural, if if you're going to say empirically not normal, as in taking the literal definition that you know, the majority of people aren't, mm. then I'd agree with you. But I, I, I don't know about not natural. I mean, it happens... Love is an emotion that is aroused in people naturally. I, I, it's it's a different way of showing your love, but I'm not, I'm not sure 
maybe this is the softy liberal in me, but I'm not sure if you could say it's uh, not natural. But see, this is an interesting thing because what he's talking about is not love. He's talking about the sexual act. Um, you know, you got to remember it's a philosoph- philosophical inquiry into sexual desire in which he points out that sexual, that homosexual act is not natural because empirically it's not, biologically it's not. He's not saying homosexual love isn't. He doesn't talk about romantic desire. Romantic desire is somewhat different. If you look back through um, certain Western traditions, brotherly love is actually considered more is considered a higher level of love than between the man and the woman because it's it's more honest. Um, and he doesn't talk about that. He talks about sexual desire. So that's where the homophobia claim came from, and that's perhaps something that you know we can talk about another time. Right. The Islamophobia one came from a book called The West and the Rest, which was published in 2002, which is when he looked at the Western tradition and how it's developed in a direction that promotes individual liberty whilst retaining communal harmony and this sort of thing, um, and creating a respectable difference between the institutions of church and the institutions of state. Um, as a conservative and as a high conservative, he doesn't say that church and state should be separate. Um, when he talks about the American tradition, he says they have a separation of church and state, and that is that is good for them. In Britain, we don't have a separation of church and state, but they are kept at such an arm's length distance that there is very little influence either way. Um, now, he said that in the in the rest of the world, this hasn't happened, which means that you find in Middle Eastern countries, for instance, that there is such a close association between... Um, the state and the church that there is no room for individual liberty because the individual's life is dictated by religious scripture and the power of the state is there to enforce that so this is where he he says that islam cannot develop in the direction of western christianity because it does not have the institutional ability to do so and that is why the, the individual is a victory of western liberalism and it will not succeed elsewhere. And he says the same thing when you look at the East and Africa and, and, and South America and all this area of the world. Um, and he says that the, the, the relationship between church and state and, and you know the, the internal politics of these countries um, does not lend itself to the same freedoms of the West. So that's where the Islamophobia claim came from. And then finally, the, the anti-Semitism claim, which was the most spurious came from the fact that in a speech he referred to uh, a lot of Hungarian intellectuals were Jewish um, and they formed part of, or they were they were considered a constituent part of the Soros Empire. Now, when he says the Soros Empire, he doesn't mean a, a global conspiracy of Jewish people, as people seem to want to interpret. Right. What he meant was the large number of NGOs and organisations that George Soros has founded. Now, he doesn't say that these are bad. He doesn't say that these are good. He simply says that they are. And he also points out, quite empirically true, that a lot of intellectuals in Hungary are Jewish. But if you read further down the script, conveniently cut off by anyone that wanted to, to slander him, he says quite explicitly that Jewish people are suspect, suspicious of nationalism with good reason to be so because of the history of the 20th century. And therefore... Hungarian nationalism, as Viktor Orban is um, 
such a proponent of, needs to make sure it loses this nationalistic edge because a national sentiment is the only way of developing any kind of loyalty in the contemporary political world. And Jewish people will not go for a national identity if it's associated with radical nationalism. And if you actually look at um, Scruton's history, the only reason he's friends with Orban is because when he was a dissident in the Eastern European bloc behind the Iron Curtain, he taught loads of theological and political courses that Orban was a student in. Yeah. But in 2016, I think it was, when he met Orban, which was a lot of people saying, oh, Scruton met Orban, they had a private conversation, they're clearly best friends. What he met Orban to do was try and persuade Orban to not close down the university that was founded by Soros in Hungary. Because as Scruton as is, is a very consistent individual, yeah. he pointed out that intellectual dissidence is extraordinarily important in fostering um, political freedom. And he said to Orban, you should know this just as well, you were an intellectual dissident. And having the Soros University in Hungary's borders is a positive thing for Hungary. It's not there to undermine Hungary's national sovereignty. It's there to improve the intellectual debate within that country. So all these claims are fundamental misrepresentations of what Scruton actually believes, and even more so has said. So anyone that actually assumes these things are people that have heard second or third or even fourth hand what Scruton thinks. And they've heard it from people who have an agenda in misrepresenting what it is he actually believes. Yeah. Well, I, I think that was that was extremely apparent with all this roar, which has subsequently died away, as everything does. Um, if, if we're going to be fair, I think Scruton was also criticised uh, when labelled as a homophobe because he said that, I think he has stated that uh, homosexual couples shouldn't be able to adopt. Well, see, that's again, I think that's, that's a Christian, um, a more traditionalist Christian perspective that I think you can't really ad- ad- blame someone for believing, um, but even if this were actually the, the case, he's not in a position as head of a commission on architecture to influence yeah. that as a form of policy. The, 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 this is the point, yeah, it was a... Uh... Much like what happened with Toby Jones, I think, earlier this year. Although yeah. that's, that, that seems like ages ago. But, um, you know, th- these are sort of unpaid advisory roles offering a certain expertise. And yet people just get so offended and worked up because someone's given an, an advisory role and has said something that, let's be honest, has got bugger all to do with what they're advising on. Exactly, um, and especially in the case of Scruton, that a lot of the stuff, a lot of the stuff that was labelled against him was purely taken out of context. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it it just seems, it I just hate this partisan point scoring that is so mm. re- prevalent in our, you know, in our society today. Mm. It's just, just trivial and juvenile. Yeah. He said this. Oh, no, no. Grow up. Mm. There was no, there was no willingness to engage with um, Scruton's actual architectural beliefs. Um, there was the only person I know. Yeah, but that, that's boring to most people. Well, yeah, 
Like, of course the they point. wouldn't. It's, it's, it's such a minor commission. Yeah. It's going to impact a tiny percentage. And, I mean, I hope it impacts the whole country. I hope we actually listen to the commission and we do start building beautiful buildings again. Um, but it's not going to... Like, even if, you know, even it isn't the case. Even if he was actually anti-Semitic or Islamophobic, it's not like he would advise against building synagogues or mosques. That's not going to happen because he's there to talk about architectural beauty, not architectural policy. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. I mean, I mean, my reservation on that last point would be that you don't want extreme bigots in government necessarily. It's not a path you want to... It's not a precedent you want to set by having a government seemingly cozying up to extremists. However, Scruton isn't an extremist, so this is all sort of hypothetical, really. Um, Whereas the critics were taking it as literal, um, which is just the wrong thing to do. It's ignorance, or if it's not ignorance, it's just mendacious. So, mm. oh well. It's it's dark. It's dark. What? Why does? I I I I'm just lost for words by how people get so offended offended, or or they they have this moral crusade that they have to use offence mm. as a mechanism for point scoring mm. for for tiny positions that don't affect their lives is it just so people can sort of pat themselves on the back and go yay we won today (laughs) and then sort of wake up tomorrow and go right who's the next victim who's the next target what can i be offended about today why why does anyone want to live their life where they can just get offended every single day like why do you want to look for things to be offended by just chill out but no no you've got to be offended you've got to look for injustice Tackle injustice when it arises, absolutely. <sighs> yeah. God, I, I ah. This always happens. <laughs> Sorry, I've upset you. No, you? it's fine. It's fine. I, I've sort of upset myself, really. Maybe I'll have. Maybe I'll tweet about how I'm a dick. <laughs> I've I've offended myself. Therefore, I should be punished. That'd be a one-man crusade against me that I started. <laughs> That'd be sensible. Well, that's probably how... The, the, the revolution eats its, its own children. It does. Yeah. Are there any positive news that we can talk about to cheer ourselves up? I'm not sure there is. <laughs> I'm going to Google positive news. Are you actually... Po- yeah. Positive news. There's a website called positive.news. Is there? Yeah. Oh, that's nice. What's uh, what's the what's the top no, story? No, I'm not reading this. There's a book. The star, for God's sake. The first article. The first article says boys will be boys and girls will be girls, or so the saying goes. But what if you're a girl who loves cage fighting or a boy with a passion for ballet? There's a series of books championing alternative role models. I'm not reading that. <laughs> I'm not reading that. You you might enlighten yourself. Off. Ooh. <laughs> um, no, I cut that out. Um, no. 
I'm not. Um, what was the second story? All right, the first story wasn't a hit. What was the second story? Well, I've gone onto a different site. It's called Good uh, News Network. Good News Here's Network. Something. Okay. Social media isn't all bad. Facebook fundraising has generated over one billion dollars in donations for charity. Is that it? Yep. Facebook. What? The actual organisation has only donated a million dollars. No, no. I think. I think oh. the. the um, yeah, so, you know how, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's things like so-and-so is raising money for his birthday. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Things like that. So, the new the new donate button that has um, been introduced three years ago has since then allowed people to contribute one billion dollars worth of... Um, one billion? Donations. Oh, wow. That's oh, pretty that's, good. That's good. Well done. Well done, everyone. Mm. That's all right. Right, what's the next story? Um, maybe we should start using this website. So we, we should, it. we should. Ed, positive news. Be, yeah, positive. What was it? Good news network. Yeah, good news network. Excellent. Um, become the duck house staple. <laughs> I can't. I don't know. Um, Brilliant. Well, this is riveting. Well, I, I tell you, actually, let's let's end it by giving a very brief obituary to Stanley. Uh, the floor is yours. I mean, I'm. I, I'm not a, a huge comic book reader, but you cannot, you, you you can't deny the influence that he's had on the creative industry. Um, there are iconic characters that he's created that I think have become cultural phenomena in um, in in our, what I say, in our creative industry. Um, and it just was a really sad thing to, to hear that he'd passed away. Not necessarily unexpected, but um, sad nonetheless. Indeed. I mean, like you, I've never read a Marvel comic in my life, so... Well, I've, I've, read, I've read comics. Oh. Um, does the, does the Beano never... count? I read the Beano. <laughs> yes, as, as we all should. Um, <laughs> Is that still going? I don't know. Let's have a look. Um... I hope it is. I doubt it. Beano. Beano and Dandy. They were the ones. Oh, no, it's still going, yeah. Is it? It's still, yeah, it's still oh, going. Ah, fantastic. Has it still got Dennis the Menace, Bass Street Kids? I don't know, actually. Let's have a look. Who Who's your fa- favourite Beano character? Oh, it's probably Dennis the Menace. Dennis the Menace, yeah. yeah. I'm surprised, yeah, actually. I'd, I'd, I'm surprised actually if like Dennis the Menace is still going. I don't know if you remember like the uh, the old stories about Dennis versus Walter the Wimp. Yes. <laughs> Could not have that in like this PC world. No. Or PC age. I shouldn't say PC world. We're not in any way endorsed by PC world. <laughs> but if they want to. <laughs> if anyone's listening. Yeah. Hit us up. <laughs> um. Well, I think oh, there was this thing about Dennis the Menace being given like a a makeover so that he wasn't um, even a a menace anymore. He was just called Dennis. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was last year. Dennis the Menace gets PC makeover. Oh no! Name change and soft personality. Oh, for heaven's um, sake! <laughs> oh. Nothing is safe. Nothing is safe. Bloody hell! Why? <laughs> Why? Um, yeah, so Why does every character have to be cushy and the same and nice and polite? 
Why not have a variety of characters, a variety of ideas? In, <laughs> Dennis, who first appeared in the Beano, 1951, no longer torments the bespectacled called Walter Softy. Um, he was called Walter Softy. <laughs> <laughs> instead, he leads his friends and his dog Nasha on merry adventures in a new BBC children's show, Dennis and Nasha Unleashed. Oh, for heaven's sake. Yeah. Uh, Mike Sterling, head of Beano Studios Scotland, said that the new Dennis is reflective of the world we live in today. Rubbish. Dennis makes mistakes just like any other person, but his mistakes only make him more determined to succeed. For heaven's sake. <laughs> Bloody hell. What has the world come to? Oh, my word. Oh. Unbelievable. Yeah, and comic historian Paul Gravitt warned people would be disappointed by the change, and if characters become too politically correct, they risk losing their anarchic appeal. What's the What's the point in reading it? Mm. Oh, Dennis goes down to the local village fete, and he wins first prize at I don't know the. <laughs> what is there? Beanbag toss. Beanbag toss. There oh, we go. My word. Well, no, he, he he probably couldn't win first prize because as a boy, he probably that would that would show that boys throw uh, further yeah. than girls and therefore couldn't possibly have that. Yeah, he'll get a participation trophy. He he would he would he'd get a little participation trophy and a and a calippo to say thanks for your effort. <laughs> Jesus. Sorry, Rory. It was meant to be a fitting tribute to Stan Lee, but it's turned into another thing to upset you. Yeah, and also. In the memory of Stanley, we we didn't mean to move on to um, the the fall from grace of Dennis the Menace. Sorry. No. Sorry to the I... listeners as well. This must be a load of drivel. Yeah, I don't think people. <laughs> no, th- there's probably no one who stayed on this long. But that's no. the charm of the Duck House. Exactly. That's the charm of it. Yeah. We should probably end there. Yeah. Well, R.I.P. Stanley. R.I.P. Stanley. R.R.P. the government and Britain. R.R.P. Brexit. We're, well, you know what? Next week we'll see if we're still living in a in a civilized society or whether it has just transitioned into an anarchic state. We could, <laughs> we could be the new Libya. Oh my word! Don't say that. Well, you never know. That's not a state anymore, is it? That's just a complete mess. Well, yeah. But before we before we go down that route, let's just. Uh... Let's just end it there. Yeah. All right. All right, P. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Hopefully. Hopefully.